Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 10 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 the conquest and settlement of the Principality of Wales, 1274-1301. The first serious difficulty that met King Edward in Britain was presented by the attitude of the Prince of Wales. Llewellyn ap Griffith had never cordially accepted the settlement of 1267. Flushed with the greatness of his triumph, he regarded the Treaty of Shrewsbury as but the starting point for a fresh career of aggression. He never understood that the dexterous game he had played so well when England was divided was the merest foolishness when the discord of king and barons was over, and when a strong king, ruling with the nation's good will, stood in the place of the weak and irresolute Henry. Llewellyn was a man of vigorous character, high courage, and great dexterity and adroitness, but there was something of the barbarian about him, and he was slow to recognize new forces and tune his policy to altered conditions. He never realized that the barons' wars were over, and ever sought to pose with the English as the true successor of Earl Simon hoping to thus win the hand of Eleanor, Montfort's only daughter, and to renew with the sons the close connection that had existed between him and the great earl. But Edward I was not Henry III, and the murderers of Viterbo were but poor substitutes for Earl Simon the Righteous. Moreover, Clewellyn was not content with the part which he had hitherto occupied as leader of the Welsh race. Inspired by the vain prophecies that credulity attributed to the wizard Merlin, and puffed up by the panegyrics of the bards and minstrels who reveled in his bounty, Llewellyn dreamed of a time when the Saxon should be expelled from the island of Britain and the ancient British race again rule over its old inheritance. He chafed, therefore, against the ties of vassalage that bound him to the English crown and profiting by the absence of Edward in the first two years of his reign, he resisted all the efforts of the regents to exact from him the customary homage to the new king. Nor did the return of Edward in 1274 mend matters. Llewellyn still excused himself, shuffled, and at last openly defied the royal mandates the rough rule of Edward's ministers, the chronic disputes of the Welsh with the swarm of hostile marchers, gave Llewellyn plenty of pretexts, and in the eyes of his subjects at least, 
some sort of justification for his contemptuous disregard of feudal law. Edward was at last moved to profound anger. We have seen how he rigorously fulfilled the most irksome of his obligations as Duke of Gascony. He had no patience with the shifty Welshman and sternly resolved to enforce his obligations by the sword. The Montfort established some connection with their old partisans in England, but Edward wisely checkmated their action by issuing a full pardon to the disinherited. The best of the baronial party were now on his side. Thomas of Cantaloupe, Earl Simon's chancellor, was Bishop of Hereford, and actively cooperated with Edward against Llewellyn. Nevertheless, Amaury de Montfort, the most respectable of the sons of Simon, took ship with his sister Eleanor to Wales that she might become the bride of Llewellyn. But some Bristol mariners captured the little squadron at sea. Edward put Amaury into prison and retained Eleanor in the queen's household. He paid no heed to Llewellyn's urgent appeals for their release. He was resolved that the Montfort should have no chance of reviving a party of popular opposition. In 1276 there was war all along the Welsh border. In the early summer of 1277 the feudal levies mustered at Chester under the faithful Earl of Lincoln. Edward himself led the great expedition against Clewellyn. His early experience taught him the right method of warfare and how best to win for himself allies among the Welsh. David, the brother of Llewellyn, fought under Edward's banner, along with the many Welsh chieftains who were jealous of Llewellyn's greatness. Broad roads were cut through the dense forests that then made dangerous the passage of the army from Chester to the Conway. A considerable fleet, mostly gathered from the sink ports, sailed along the coast and kept the land forces well supplied with provisions and information. Llewellyn made scarcely a show of resistance, but retreated with all his men into the recesses of the great group of mountains, which were in those days roughly known by the name of Snowdon. Edward's plan was now to blockade his enemies in Snowdon. Every exit from the mountains was closed, while the fleet cut off all communications with Anglesey, whence alone Llewellyn could draw the supplies of corn necessary to keep his troops alive in the desolate regions of his retreat. Llewellyn held out a long time, but on the approach of winter he was starved into submission. Early in November he came down from the hills and accepted with what grace he could the hard terms imposed by Edward in the Treaty of Conway. By this convention the Welsh prince resigned all claims over the four cantreds of Prevethlid and consented to hold Anglesey for his life only. He retained his other lands along with the title of prince, but they were burdened with fines and a yearly rent for Anglesey, and he was forced to deliver up hostages for his good behavior. Edward was, however, in no mood to exact these humiliating terms to the letter. He remitted at once the rent and the fine 
and sent back the hostages. Llewellyn now made his personal submission to Edward at Ruthlan, and afterwards attended the Christmas court of his lord at Westminster, where he solemnly performed his long-delayed homage before the assembled magnates. The Welsh prince was now in high favour. Next year he held another interview with Edward at Worcester, where in return for further submission he was allowed to marry Eleanor Montfort. Edward himself attended the wedding ceremony. Llewellyn's brother David had received his reward in a rich estate in the Vale of Clwyd. The Treaty of Conway gave Edward an opportunity of renewing the plans of his early youth and introducing the English shire system and laws into the ceded districts. The county court of Carmarthen and Cardigan, which had continued a sickly and precarious existence since its first establishment, was now revived, while the justice of Chester sought to subject the four cantreds to the jurisdiction of the Cheshire Shire moot. Meanwhile, English traders and settlers came in with the train of the English armies, and the castles that had first been established in the old days of Norman aggressions were now rebuilt and strengthened to keep down the subject lands. This policy excited the Welsh inhabitants of the ceded districts to the uttermost fury. They complained that Edward had shamefully broken the promise that he had made of ruling his new possessions according to their ancient customs and liberties. Edward answered that he would maintain the old Welsh laws so far as they were good ones, but that many of them were barbarous and directly at variance with the Ten Commandments. Such evil customs he could never observe, as he was bound by his coronation oath to uphold justice. This attitude was eminently characteristic. Edward's orderly and well-trained mind was disgusted at the barbarism of the old Welsh laws, and he honestly believed that he was doing his Welsh subjects the best service in his power by uprooting that venerable but primitive jurisprudence that allowed the murderer to atone for his crime by a money payment and regarded wrecking as an inalienable right of the dwellers by the seashore. But Edward never understood the feelings of the Welsh at thus seeing their most cherished institutions trampled scornfully under the foot of an alien conqueror. His strong but somewhat narrow nature had few points of contact with the fiery hot-headed enthusiasts with whom he had now to deal. He wished honestly that those Welsh customs should remain which were not against his conception of natural justice, but neither he nor his lawyers would put themselves in a sufficiently receptive attitude to understand them. At bottom, Edward's real policy was to make Welshmen Englishmen as soon as possible, and he was surprised that they resented his transparent sophisms and murmured at reforms that he had only meant for their good. But now, as ever, Edward was badly served by his subordinates. The violence and brutality of his bailiffs and constables stood in damning contrast to his abstract talk about justice. His best friends among the Welsh fully shared in the national resentment to his policy. David himself was deeply hurt and had quietly reconciled himself with his brother. 
in the spring of 1282, the long smouldering hostility of the four cantreds to the English system burst out into open revolt. On the eve of Palm Sunday, David fell upon Howard and Castle and took prisoner Roger Clifford, its guardian. Llewellyn hurried over the Conway to his assistance and devastated the country to the very gates of Chester. A simultaneous rising broke out in the south, where the Welsh insurgents took possession of the new castle of Aberystwyth, the key of Cardigan and Carmarthen. Edward was deeply enraged at the news of the new rebellion. He now resolved to make a great effort to finally crush the power of the Welsh prince. Archbishop Peckham of Canterbury put Clewellyn under the ban of the church. Great armies were poured into both the northern and southern districts of the principality. The strategy of 1277 was renewed. Llewellyn was again shut up in Snowdon, whither the archbishop journeyed on a vain effort to induce him to submit. But Edward would accept no terms but unconditional surrender, though he gave a private assurance that Llewellyn should receive an estate of £1,000 a year in England, with due provision for his brother. But Llewellyn scorned such a degrading submission, and mindful of his fate in 1277, escaped almost unattended from Snowdon before the winter snows again compelled him to surrender. He soon appeared in the marches of the Upper Wye, hoping to raise a fresh revolt among the Welsh tenants of the Mortimers. On 11th December, Llewellyn was slain in an obscure skirmish near Booth. David, who now called himself Prince of Wales, managed to hold out until the next summer, when his hiding place amidst the bogs of Snowdon was discovered by the treachery of some of his own countrymen. With his capture, the triumph of Edward was completed. A special parliament was summoned to Shrewsbury to deal with the double-dyed traitor. On the 3rd of October, 1283, David was hung, drawn, and quartered with the approval of the assembled estates. The principality was now conquered. Edward resolved that its future government should be put upon a solid basis. He remained in Wales almost continually until the work was done, living for the most part at Rutland, and not finally quitting the country until the end of 1284. In the spring of 1284, he established at Rutland the Statute of Wales, which contained the chief points of the new scheme. By it, the principality was declared annexed to the crown, and was constituted shire ground. The already existing shires of Cardigan and Carmarthen were set up in a more legal and complete manner. Though much smaller in size than the modern counties, they included the whole of the southern possessions of Llewellyn. They were put under a justice of West Wales, who held his court at Carmarthen. In the same way, the northern dominions of Clewellyn were divided into the three counties of Anglesey, Carnarvon, and Marioneth, the three old shires of Gwyneth. They were ruled over by the justice of Snowdon, who kept his state at Carnarvon. Sheriffs, county courts, coroners, and bailiffs were set up as in England, and a rough copy of English local government was thus introduced throughout the whole principality. 
Edward's Welsh counties, as a modern writer has well said, bear to the English counties of this time some such relation as the territory of the United States bears to the fully organized state. But it is to Edward's credit that he set up what form of local government he thought best in his new possession. And if at first the king's bailiffs and ministers had more power than in England, the administration of the Welsh shires fell almost from the first into native Welsh hands, and Edward made the new divisions more acceptable by building them up out of the cantreds and commotes, which constituted the immemorial territorial divisions of the Cymru. A sixth Welsh county was also established by Edward in Flintshire, but this small region was for most purposes annexed to Edward's palatinate of Cheshire, and Flintshire was, for all practical purposes, a mere dependency of the neighboring earldom, rather than an independent and autonomous shire. With the shire system came in a good many English laws, though Edward, made wise by experience, now took good care to uphold such Welsh customs as did not conflict with his sense of justice. But beyond these limits Edward's reforms did not go. His Welsh legislation left the Lords Marcher in the enjoyment of their disorderly feudal freedom, though the annexation of the principality to the crown largely diminished their political importance. The Marchers had helped Edward against Llewellyn, and he saw no good reason to disturb their vested rights, and probably feared to provoke the hostility of the many great English barons who would have certainly resented any infringement of their jurisdiction in their Welsh lordships. On the contrary, Edward erected new lordships marcher in those parts of the four cantreds which were not included in the new shire of Flint. The most important of these was the lordship of Denby, which Edward bestowed on his faithful follower, the Earl of Lincoln. The result of all this was that the separation of Wales into principality and marches continued just as before until the reign of Henry VIII. It speaks well for the wisdom of Edward's legislation that it was as much from the marches as from the principality that Edward's subsequent Welsh troubles arose. The subjection of the principality was completed by the establishment of a strong line of castles and fortified towns. Edward now repeated in the principality the policy already tried so successfully in Gascony. A row of Bastide or Ville Anglaise were set up on the Menai and the Conway, as on the Garonne and the Dordogne, to serve the same purposes of protection and defense, and to further in the same way the spread of commerce and civilization. Archbishop Peckham advised Edward to make the Welsh live in towns, and to send their children to school in England, for thus only, he declared, would the Welsh learn civility. But Edward's object was not so much to attract the Welsh to live in his towns as to settle in them little bands of English soldiers, officials, and traders who would prove, as in Ireland, the rallying points of an English interest. Though luckily for both England and Wales, the townsfolk soon intermingled with the dwellers in the country, yet the history of Welsh towns is practically the history of English influence in Wales, 
and down to the days of Queen Elizabeth, the separation so far remained that English and not Welsh was the ordinary spoken tongue of every market town in Wales. But even more than the Welsh towns, the Welsh castles remain to this day a monument of Edward's power. The castle and walls of Conway, where fortress and town alike owed their existence to the conquest, Carnarvon Castle dominating the Straits of Menai, and the rocky stronghold of Harlech, raised far above the waters of Cardigan Bay, are the best memorials of Edward's work in Wales. It has even been suggested that the well-known type of concentric castle to which these buildings belong was first brought into the west by Edward and based upon his observations in Syria of the mighty strongholds of the Latin Christians of Palestine. But Edward cannot claim this credit, and his boldest castles in Wales were but copies of the already existing castle of Caerphilly, built a few years earlier by Earl Gilbert of Gloucester. Yet if Edward imitated the marchers in building castles, the marchers imitated Edward in setting up or granting charters to towns, so that the castle building and town foundation extended over principality and marches alike. The result was a great spread of civilization, and Wales, after 1284, though far from settled, even according to the low standards of the Middle Ages, attained a far greater measure of peace and prosperity after that the just though unsympathetic rule of Edward had succeeded the unending factions and the bloody wars of the native princes of Gwynedd. Archbishop Peckham busied himself with the ecclesiastical reformation of Wales. Like Edward, he showed scanty respect for Welsh susceptibilities, but he did good work in rebuilding churches, raising the standard of church discipline, removing the married priests, and improving the education of the clergy. Moreover, he exhorted Edward to maintain fully the ancient liberties of the Welsh church, and bitterly complained of the rash violence of Edward's officials, who destroy and overturn every ecclesiastical usage that differs from the Anglican use to the no small peril of their souls. His highest desire was to see the Welsh better educated and accustomed to work for their living. In August of 1284, Edward celebrated his conquest by holding a round-table tournament at Nevin in Carnarvonshire, where the most famous knights of England and the continent fought amidst the wilds of Snowdon. Wonderful relics were opportunely discovered, including the body of Constantine the Great's father and the crown of King Arthur. The latter was presented to Edward. Thus the glory of Wales, says the chronicler, was transferred to the English. Edward had no great difficulty with his new subjects during the rest of his reign. There were several revolts which threatened to become formidable, but the only one which really taxed his resources was that of Madog ap Cluellen and his associates raised in 1294. But this owes its importance to Edward's other embarrassments at the time. During Edward's long sojourn in Wales, two of his children were born. One of these, Edward, soon became, by his brother Alfonso's death, his father's heir. 
His Welsh birth had already endeared him to Edward's new subjects, and he had a Welsh nurse and Welsh attendants to keep up his interest in the land of his birth. The stories that Edward presented him on his birth to the Welsh as their future prince have no more authority than the local tradition which points out as his birthplace a room in Carnarvon Castle which is manifestly of later date. At last, in 1301, Edward created Edward, Prince of Wales, thus keeping the principality separate from the crown, though retaining it in the hands of the royal family, and using it, as in his own father's time, as a means of training the heir in the work of government. It was a wise measure. Edward of Carnarvon was always a great favorite with the Welsh, who succored him in his severest troubles and celebrated his mournful fate in dirges written in their native tongue. Edward I's whole Welsh policy brings out clearly his characteristic strength and weakness. But despite his narrowness and want of sympathy, his stern love of justice and equal laws made his policy in the long run a success, especially against a power whose open resistance he could crush with an overwhelming strength. He is generally described as the conqueror of Wales. More accurately, he was the conqueror of the principality. Yet he never sought to annex the principality to England, although he incorporated it with the English crown. The principality, like the Palatine county of Chester, or the still-abiding liberties of the Lord's Marcher, was still a land standing by itself. Save on two occasions under Edward II, no members of Parliament were summoned to represent the Principality at the King's Court. The King's writ and the King's English judges had no jurisdiction, and the whole machinery of administration remained separate and distinct. It was reserved for Henry VIII to make England and Wales a single political unity. End of section 10. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.